In this preaching series called Jacob in the Pursuit of Blessing, we come today to the last part of Genesis 29 and the first part of Genesis 30. And you know, if I was only preaching my favorite scripture passages from Sunday to Sunday, I'd probably never preach this one. (laughs) But it is a vital part of the book of Genesis that reveals how God was building the family of promise and how through divine grace, rather than human merit, God establishes his kingdom. So embedded in this rather painful story is God's gracious gift of hope. Beside that, as the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture, including this passage, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So let's listen to this very earthy episode through which God's Heavenly promise and divine purpose are being carried out, starting at Genesis 29 and verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben, for she said, It is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at last my husband will become attached to me because I have borne him three sons. So she named him Levi. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, This time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. When Rachel saw that she was not bearing Jacob any children, she became jealous of her sister. And so she said to Jacob, Give me children or I'll die. Jacob became angry with her, and he said, Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children? And then she said, Here is Bilhah, my servant. Sleep with her so that she can bear children for me, and I too can build a family through her. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife. Jacob slept with her, and she became pregnant and bore him a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me. He has listened to my plea and given me a son. And because of this, she named him Dan. Rachel's servant Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. And then Rachel said, I have had a great struggle with my sister and I have won. So she named him Naphtali. When Leah saw that she had stopped having children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son. And then Leah said, what good fortune, so she named him Gad. Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son. And then Leah said, how happy I am, the women will call me happy, so she named him Asher. During the wheat harvest, Reuben went out into the fields and found some mandrake plants, which he brought to his mother Leah. Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Wasn't it enough that you took away my husband? Will you take my son's mandrakes too? 
Very well, Rachel said. He can sleep with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. So when Jacob came in from the fields that evening, Leah went out to meet him. You must sleep with me, she said. I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he slept with her that night. God listened to Leah, and she became pregnant and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has rewarded me for giving my servant to my husband. So she named him Issachar. <laughs> Leah conceived again and bore Jacob a sixth son. And then Leah said, God has presented me with a gracious, a precious gift. This time, my husband will treat me with honor because I have borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulun. Sometime later, she gave birth to a daughter and named her Dinah. Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. Well, it's a really messy story, isn't it? You know, a man being married to two sisters seems inappropriate, even sinful to us, and no, it's not God's way. But that practice was actually not prohibited until later in the law of Moses. Later in Leviticus 18.18, 18, it commands, do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife. Good reason for that. But this passage is the very center of the Jacob story. It's full of rivalry and jealousy and scheming and bribery. It actually makes daytime television look pretty tame. <laughs> but while this sinful drama is being played out, Jacob and Leah and Rachel are battling with each other, and while this is happening, God is giving birth to a nation. And God can bring forth fruit even from a troubled marriage. And out of this messy marriage arrangement, God was giving birth to his people and the nation of Israel was being born. So you're probably not very impressed with the, the way the nation of Israel begins here. You might expect a more perfect beginning. You know, with a man and one woman, and children from one marriage. That would seem a better way to start. Maybe, maybe something like Adam and Eve, you know, they had a perfect beginning. But then again, that marriage didn't get on so well either. You know, Adam and Eve made a, a mess of things despite their perfect beginning. And yet even in, with all their fallenness and their sin and, and failure, God used that original couple to give birth to the human race. And now he'll use this divided and messed up family of Jacob's to found Israel, the family of promise. So God, God can work out his, his purposes, even through the messiest situations. And he's able to bring blessing in spite of our human dysfunctionalities. And his purpose is still operative, even in the places of scandal and deception. So as, we, as we've been seeing throughout this story of, of Jacob here, our God is a God who delights in writing straight lines with crooked pencils and you know, using clay pots to store his treasure. He chooses the foolish things and the weak things, and he can use the weakest and most flawed people in his gracious plans to bring about his wonderful purposes. So why does he do that? 
Well, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, it's to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us, so no one can boast. His work is accomplished by His grace, not by human effort. And, you know, Jacob was a weak and deeply flawed man. I mean, he had deceived and cheated his brother Esau out of his birthright and his blessing. And now, as we saw last week, he, he's been cheated and deceived himself by his uncle Laban. He was deceived into marrying Leah, the older, less attractive sister, who he doesn't love, and cheated into working for her father Laban for an additional seven years in order to get Rachel the lovely younger sister that he does love. The result of all this, though, is a vicious triangle, a messy story of two wives who were competing for their husband's favor and for his children. The fertile Leah, desperate for Jacob's love, and the barren Rachel, desperate for Jacob's children. And each wants what the other has, and they're unsatisfied with what they've got. So Genesis 29, 31 says, When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. So Leah, the unloved wife, was in a really difficult place here, partly through her own role in deceiving Jacob in the marriage bed. But God has a special concern for those whose lives are particularly difficult or painful, even if self-inflicted. He graciously allows Leah to conceive, and she bears a son. And soon, three more sons in fairly rapid succession. And Leah acknowledges God's mercy to her, but the names that she gives to her sons actually open a window for us into how she's thinking and what she's feeling. You know, when we name our children today, we usually name them after someone else that we admire or we just like the sound of the name perhaps when uh, Kim was six months pregnant with our first child uh, we were in London England and uh, one day we were walking in downtown London near Leicester Square and, and we saw a large storefront sign which was written in uh, this, this beautiful flowing script with the name Christopher and we were both impressed with how great that that name looked up there and we decided, if we have a son, we will name him Christopher. Well, we had a son, and his name is Christopher. Well, it wasn't until later that uh, we discovered that Christopher, the name Christopher, has a meaning, as most names do. And in the Greek, it means Christ-bearer. And we thought, well, that's good. Well, in Genesis, all names have meanings, or they sound like words that mean something. And the names that Leah gave to her sons are names that reflect her own spiritual state at the time of their birth. The first three sons' names are actually kind of a sad commentary on her unfulfilled longing for the love of her husband. Each time she names a, a child, the name means something like, now my husband will love me. Or now maybe my life will have some meaning. Reuben, the name of her firstborn, means something like God has seen me. And Simeon, the name of her secondborn, means God has heard me. And Levi, the third name, means now I'm attached to my husband. And sadly, 
Each time a son comes along, she says, finally I'll be visible, finally uh, I'll be heard, at last my husband will love me. But it never happens. And we can hear Leah's pain coming through in the names of her sons. But something else is gripping Leah's heart, which is also revealed in these names. And it may sound strange, but the first three names reveal a form of idolatry in her. The kind of idolatry where you, you put your hope in something, something in this world, to give you a sense of, of being loved or of giving meaning to life. You know, Jacob did this too. He thought, if I marry the beautiful Rachel, then I will have happiness. But it didn't really work. And now Leah says, if I have children, if I have sons, I'll be worth something and I'll be loved. And it never works. You know, there are traditional values and desirable things like a happy marriage and a perfect family, a beautiful home. But if we build our lives on those things, the Bible actually comes against that. If you build your life just on your spouse, you become either emotionally dependent or controlling or maybe judgmental. And if anything goes wrong with your spouse, you come apart at the seams. The traditional values of Leah's culture were if I don't have children, then I'm a nobody. And she fit right into that. Ah, son, now at last I'll have some worth around here. You see, instead of the Lord's approval, she regarded her husband's approval the essential thing to give her life value. But she never really got it. Now, for Leah, without Jacob's approval, what did it matter that the Lord had seen her misery and answered her prayers? You know, to her, God was just a, a useful channel to get meaning in her life instead of the actual source of meaning in her life. And this is the essence of idolatry. You know, putting someone or something other than the living God into that God-shaped space at the core of our being. Now, if we don't put God at the center, inevitably we will try to fill that void with other things. Whatever we say we must have instead of or as well as God, is in order to have a life that's meaningful, that will become our idol. It might be our health, it might be comfort, or it might be wealth, it might be uh, having control, or it might be our affection for another person. It might even be having children. But if you put it above or at the same level as God in our lives, it becomes an idol. And idols always disappoint, and they never ultimately satisfy. A deep relationship with, with God in Christ and Him alone is what we need to have life in all of its fullness. And when we do that, the other things will, will fall into place. That's why David said in that psalm, Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. David, of course, was a man after God's own heart, but he knew what it meant to put God first. Well, God showed mercy to Leah in her distress, but the son she was given her, kind of almost taken for granted. I mean, she wanted nothing more than to be attached to her husband. And yet what she longed for lay outside of her grasp. Jacob's heart was still cold toward her. And her idolatry was frustratingly unsatisfied. 
Maybe if Leah had a nicer husband, she might have been able to actually live with that delusion a little longer. But Jacob was still Jacob. And Leah finally comes to see that, that idols always make our disappointment with the world even worse. And so in verse 35, though, something changes with Leah. You know, each time she's given birth, she said, now my husband will love me. But when she gives birth to this fourth son, she says, this time I will praise the Lord. And she finally sets her eyes on God and names her boy Judah, which means praise. Finally, there's, there's no talk here about her husband, just praise to God. So what changed? Well, sometimes the pain of unsatisfied idolatry becomes for us a messenger from God, revealing those hidden recesses in our hearts. You know, as long as we go along getting what we want or thinking that we're, we're getting it, our idol is, is smiling on us, you know, and so it's easy to be unaware of the power that idol has over us. If we idolize our health, as long as we're healthy, we don't actually realize how much our sense of self-worth depends on being well and fit. If we idolize wealth, as long as we're comfortably off, we don't even guess how much we depend on our money. If someone idolizes their beauty, they don't understand how central that becomes to their view of themselves. As long as we can make the daily sacrifices that our idols require, well, they smile on us and we go merrily on our way, oblivious. But when we find that we can't make the payments that our idols demand, that's when things turn ugly. Our idols then start to curse us. And like Leah, we, they may plunge us, plunge us into fear or self-doubt or despair. But in the midst of that pain and suffering, there is the opportunity to discover the true nature of our idols and realize the strength of their hold on us. There's a chance to see how much stock we've actually put into the world's values. And in his grace, God may bring us to, to that point if he has to. You know, our inner stock market may experience a black Monday in order for us to open our eyes to what's really going on in our hearts. You know, one of the surest ways to uncover the idols in us is to trace our negative emotions. What causes you to worry intensely? What makes you unduly angry? What situations cause you to feel despair? And if you dig deeper into those areas, you can find traces of your own idolatry at work, places where you're not trusting God. So our negative emotions can sometimes be messengers from God that enable us to identify our, our idols, which we really need to do if we're going to turn away from them. So did Leah have this kind of experience between the births of her third and fourth sons? Did she see the idolatry in her heart and finally come to accept the fact that even if Jacob did not love her, she had something that mattered far more, which was the love of God? Well, I think she did for a time. I mean, Leah seems to have got her life back here, and she names her fourth son Judah, which means praise. And, you know, Judah would become the ancestor of King David and become the forefather of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. But the battle's not over. Let's look at Rachel. You know, at the beginning of chapter 30 there, 
And just when it seemed that, that Leah was ready to abandon her idolatry, Rachel starts an arms race. You know, she's afraid that Leah's fertility is going to steal away Jacob's affection from her. And so she ups the ante. And she goes and says to Jacob, give me children or I'll die. You know, she didn't go and seek God about it like uh, Rebecca, Jacob's mother, had done, or like Hannah did in 1 Samuel. She just goes off on Jacob, unreasonably blaming him. And then in response, Jacob goes off on Rachel. Am I in the place of God who has kept you from having children, he says. Jacob doesn't encourage her or pray for her like Isaac did with Rebecca or like Elkanah did with Hannah. And so this is, it's sad here that, that this is the only record of a conversation that we have between Jacob and Rachel. And it's not a good one. Well, in the long section that follows, Jacob, in a way, becomes nothing more than a stud. I mean, he's just a pawn in the war of the wombs here. <laughs> Jacob then gives, uh, Rachel then gives Jacob to her maidservant, Bilhah to produce children that she can then adopt as her own. And Jacob seems to have no problem with that, and two more sons are born. And Rachel triumphantly names the first Dan, which means God is vindicated, and the second Naphtali, which means I have struggled and won. Meanwhile, Leah has stopped having children. And so she gets caught up again in this escalating battle. So she sends Jacob into her servant, Zilpah, and soon two sons are born on her behalf. And she happily names the first Gad, which means what good fortune, and the second Asher, which means women will call me happy. So the score is six to two for Leah. <laughs> but then comes the low point of this whole messy soap opera. You know, the marriage relationship turned into kind of a commodity here to be bought and sold. And Jacob, like I said, be basically becomes nothing more than a stud in this whole scenario. But Rachel, Jacob's favorite, seems to be the one in control here over who gets to sleep with Jacob. And so she actually rents out Jacob to Leah in exchange for those mandrakes that her son had found. Mandrakes were plants that were thought to have fertility enhancement qualities. <laughs> and though in the end, the mandrakes really don't do anything for Rachel. Meanwhile, though, Leah gives birth to two more sons. First name Issachar, which can mean rewarded or can mean hired. And the second son, Zebulun, meaning God has given to me. And there's also a daughter born to Leah, who she names Dinah. And we'll hear more about her later. So Leah indulges one more time in the illusion that her husband will now love her because now eight of his sons belong to her. But the more things change, the more they stay the same. Even the idols we, we thought were safely dead and buried have a way of coming back to haunt us sometimes. Those mandrakes didn't end up helping Rachel at all. But it says in verse 22, then God remembered Rachel. It's all God's doing alone. Nothing to do with mandrakes or maidservants. It's God's doing. God had not forgotten her, but she needed to be emptied of her pride and her 
privilege as the favored wife before she could be filled. She finally became pregnant when she surrendered access to Jacob and gave up on those mandrakes. <laughs> and then God showed her mercy. And so she named her son Joseph, which means, add to me another son. <laughs> so even though Rachel gives credit to God here, she's still not totally satisfied. You know, There will be another son born later named Benjamin, but his birth will be at the cost of her own life. So throughout this dismal drama, it's important not to lose sight of what God is doing. You know, human sin and jealousy and rivalry have been driving the action on one level, but God has been accomplishing his purposes on a much deeper level. He was building a nation, his chosen people. Even the failures of Jacob and the ugly scheming of Leah and Rachel, God will use to fulfill his promise. This whole sordid episode is, is turned by God into the building of the family that was promised to Abraham and through which the whole world will be blessed. So from these four women came the 12 tribes of Israel. But you know, it definitely takes the eye of faith to see it, to see God's hand at work in all this. And you know, his hand is still at work even in the sinful events of our everyday human life. His grace is greater than our sin. And that grace was actually able to come to us through the ultimate offspring of Jacob, a descendant of Judah, the true Israelite, Jesus. Of his mother, the angel said in Matthew 1.21, she will give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Only Jesus lived a perfect and a flawless life. And on the cross, his perfect record was freely given to us who believe. And because of that, even though we may look like Leah, the unwanted wife, to our bridegroom Jesus, we look like Rachel. And his love for us is really all we need. And that's the good news. With Jesus, it's not give me sons or I'll die. It's Father, I died to win these sons and daughters for you. And that's the gospel. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Amen.